Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find the notes to this morning's message in the bulletin. And this morning will be our fifth and final message in a series explaining what membership means to us. Every few years, I think the last time we did this was maybe seven or eight years ago, we try to explain what we mean, what our understanding is, for being members of a local church, in particular this local church. Um, it's our understanding that God would have all of his children be tightly connected to, united with a local church. We'd encourage you to either do that here or to find a church you can do that with, if you are his child, if you are a Christian. And then we would encourage you to help understand what we mean when we say we are Martinsdale Community Church. That's, that's our understanding. So we've been going through the six points of discussion that we have with prospective members is we try to draw our circle. What does it mean? How do we understand being united to the local church? We made these six points be our central um, points of discussion. So we've gone through them. They're on the back of the insert. And this morning, I want to try to summarize together how they all form that circle, how they all define that relationship. It's my understanding that we less create membership rather than recognize it existing. That when we sit down, we talk with people, where we can identify we have these things in common, we're identifying that those bonds are already in place. So let me have a word of prayer and we'll begin our time this morning. Lord God, you have saved us into your church. You have gifted us for your church. You have equipped us to serve your church. I pray that you would help us now to be of one mind, to understand your grand design and purpose for us in your body. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we think through what it means to be a member of the local church, the, the first point of commonality is united by a common faith in the gospel. There are lots of different organizations, some centered around differing activities, be it sports or interests, and then the commonality that we first and foremost must have is commonality in the gospel. If, you're, if you've turned to 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read for you, um, and point A here, the gospel message is of first importance. This is the, the essential thing that unites us. Paul writes this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And they appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we believe that all truth that God's revealed in this word is important, is valuable, and yet we get from Paul a priority of first importance. And so this gospel message, this message of salvation, is the primary and central thing that unifies us. And we could have everything else in common, but if we didn't have this in common, we would have, in one sense, virtually nothing in common. 
Um, the gospel is of first importance. Error of the gospel is equally of first importance. In no other epistle does Paul come out swinging like he does in Galatians. In, in the Galatian church, there was an error being introduced by people Paul calls the Judaizers, that faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, plus circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law was necessary for salvation. And Paul writes this in Galatians chapter one. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So on the one hand, the gospel message is of the first and greatest importance. On the other hand, error in the gospel, even if you're the the Apostle Paul, even if an angel visibly appeared on stage this morning, Paul says, damn him to hell. So we start with clarity on the gospel message. And the gospel message is that you and I rightly deserve the wrath of God, that day in and day out we sin, we, we live how we want with ourselves as the boss, that from the very center of our being and our hearts flows this self-centered will and we defy the God who made us, the God who sustains us, the God whose allegiance and loyalty and thanks we owe, and we sin. And that what we could not do for ourselves, we could not atone for our sins, no amount of law keeping could make up for law breaking. God did in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. And he lived a sinless life on our behalf. He fulfilled the law and its requirements for us. And then he willingly died on the cross, taking our sins upon him, taking the punishment you and I deserve, the wrath that was rightly ours, he received, and we receive his righteousness. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead, and that by faith in him and faith in that message, we can be forgiven. That gospel proclamation, that good news, is the central and primary thing that unites us. And it can't be assumed. No one can believe for you. You and you alone can turn and trust Christ. Paul says it's of first importance. An error on that message damns. This is why no matter how much we have in common with Mormons, or as Roman Catholicism understands the gospel from the Vatican website, because of the dis disagreement we have with them, we, we don't recognize, I don't recognize them, those who hold to that teaching as brothers and sisters in the faith. There, there must be clarity, there must be precision, and no confusion on the gospel. Point B, the gospel then rightly divides all of humanity. If it's of first importance, as, as you want to think through humanity, and you can divide by nations, by tribes, by tongues, in one sense, there's only two divisions. There's the division of sons of God and sons of the devil, the sons of light and sons of darkness. Let me, let me read to you in how Jesus divides up the world, starting in probably one of the most well-known and well-loved verses, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So in one sense, you could divide the entire world into those who believe and are not condemned and those who do not believe and are condemned. Or as the last verse in John chapter 3 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And this is, this is why this is our first point. We could agree on everything else, but if we don't agree on this, we, we could not be further apart. So the first, um, the first question we want to talk through, the first thing that we recognize our unity being centered in is a common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we learn from the New Testament that that union we have in the gospel, that fellowship we have as members of God's household, here's your next blank, our union in the gospel transcends all other unions. Jesus makes some remarkable statements. Let me read to you Matthew 12. Jesus, this is speaking of, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The Lord Jesus Christ recognized greater commonality using familial bond language with those who heard God's word and kept it than he did with his own flesh and blood. And so this, this metaphor is the church as God's household. This is how Paul speaks of it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It then informs our conduct. So in 1 Timothy 5, 1, we read, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. We, we are a family simply by being members of the universal church, being members of the body of Christ by being saved. So the gospel is of first importance. The gospel divides all of humanity, and our union in the gospel transcends all others. Which is to say, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have more in common with me and I with you and us with each other than any other possible line of union. And yet, that first point makes you a member of the universal church, but it doesn't make you necessarily a member of this church. And so we, we go further with our discussion. So we are together in the gospel, but our second point of discussion is that we are united by a common baptism. The gospel comes with uh, a call to discipleship, and that call is seen in those who repent and believe, those who trust in Christ coming forward and partaking of a, an ordinance, water baptism, which signifies the beginning of their faith, it signifies the beginning of their discipleship. So your first blank here, water baptism signifies the Spirit's baptism. Just as the, the meal that we will eat later this morning, is not the thing itself. It is not the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it points to, it signifies it. So water baptism is not the thing itself, but rather the sign that points to it. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we read, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit, at the moment of conversion, unites, immerses, dips you, if you will, dunks you into the body of Christ. Water baptism then pictures that. This is the same language you get from Romans 6, where Paul, speaking of what baptism symbolizes, says, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It pictures our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It is not the thing itself. But it is the first call and mark of discipleship. And so we, we also see point B, that in the earliest church, in the book of Acts, baptism is usually, not always, but usually that mark which unites a particular person to a particular local church. So we read in Acts 2.41, that is, those who received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the people who were added to the church were those who were baptized. How did the first church know who were the ones who responded to the message of, this, of the gospel of faith? Well, it was obvious. They were the ones who came forward and were baptized. And then those are the ones they added to their number. And so frequently, baptism is a, is a sign that unites a person to a particular body. You've got a particular group of witnesses who've heard someone's confession of faith, a particular group of people who've received and welcomed their statement and profession of faith. And those frequently are the ones you walk with. So we're united by a common faith in the gospel and we're united by a common baptism. Then we considered point three, united by a common confession of faith. So at this point, as we're considering what it means to be part of a local church, we start with the most important thing. We, we are trusting in the same gospel. Our understanding of the gospel is the same. And then we are those who have become obedient to Jesus and have, have taken upon us the sign of being his disciples, being baptized. The third then is united by a common confession of faith. I said earlier that the gospel is of first importance, but all of God's revealed word, all of his truth is important. And so we talked and we considered in a previous message about why it is biblically grounded that we have statements of faith. I've, I've met people who, who, who question the validity of statements of faith. Are, are we not going beyond what is written? Are we not in danger of making paper popes? And we saw that in the trustworthy sayings of the New Testament, there's already evidence that the first and earliest church was indeed coining pithy, memorable um, Summaries of doctrine, but just turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 is a wonderful example of this. 3.16 in 1 Timothy. Paul here references a summary of truth that predates the writing of 1 Timothy. When he writes this, he's already saying that he and Timothy already commonly confess this. They commonly agree on this. 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed we confess, that's where you get the idea of a confession of faith, is the mystery of godliness. And then six parallel lines, beautifully summarizing 
central Christian truth. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. So so there is warrant and evidence of the early church taking truth, packaging it together in memorable poetic ways. And Paul here celebrates the fact that he and Timothy both have this common confession. And so I think the best way to understand our statement of faith at Martinsdale is these are the common truths that we confess. These are the things that seem good to us. These are the summaries of doctrine that represent well what we believe the Bible teaches. And it's good for us to seek to have a common confession. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Philippians 2, 1 to 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul stacks up a number of reasons why we should endeavor, here's your blank, we must strive to be of one mind and in full accord. Common agreement, common confession, being on the same page on the the, the significant and major teachings of Scripture is a good and right goal for us to have. And so that then becomes another, another parameter Another boundary that helps mark us off. We are those who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We are those who in obedience to him have come forward and been baptized since coming to faith. And then we find we are those who our reading of the Bible is significantly similar. It's not that it has to be absolutely homogeneously exact, but we, we want substantive, significant agreement in what we understand is true. That's one of the things that marks us off, our confession of faith, our common confession, our common belief in what is true, that Christ will come again and set up a kingdom, our common belief on so many things laid out in our statement of faith. So we're united by a common faith in the gospel, united by a common baptism, united by a common confession of faith. And, and part of the reason this is important is we're called to defend these truths, and we can't defend truths we don't even agree upon amongst ourselves. Listen to Jude 1.3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to defend, contend, sorry, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude is telling them, I'm writing you to urge you to defend the truth. And so if that's one of the goals we need to be engaged in, we need to start by saying, hey, are we largely on the same page? And where we are, that's one of the things that unites us together united by a common confession of faith. Point number four is united by a common gathering and gifting. So, so far we've got, we have the same gospel and we've taken steps of obedience to be baptized since coming to faith and we largely are of one mind and full accord on what we think the Bible teaches on most of the significant topics. Then we're united by a common gathering and gifting. And your first blank here is we regularly gather together as a church. We regularly gather together as a church. Now, this may seem obvious, but I think it's worth stating that congregations congregate. The word church literally means the assembly or the called out ones. And the mark of a church is in their gathering. I I say this frequently, we're the church that meets in Martinsdale, the way Paul writes his letters to the church that meets in Ephesus, 
The church isn't a building, the church is a group of people. And there's a wonderful phrase in 1 Corinthians 11, 18, don't miss this. He says this, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, in their coming together, they come together as a church. So throughout the week, the church is scattered, parts of the church are doing things, but then when they gather together, they gather together as a church. That, that's the mark of the local church. So the next point that we're considering is, are these people gathering together regularly with us? Where you've got people gathering together regularly, striving, growing together, being of one mind, united by a common baptism and united by a common faith in the gospel. Now we're getting closer and closer to what it means to be a local church. United by the gospel, baptism, our confession of faith, and by our gathering. So we gather day by day and house by house, but we also gather, according to Acts 20, verse 7, the first day of the week. We have a pattern in Scripture that the whole church gathers together as often as we can on the first day of the week, even as we gather separately and in smaller groups. And in our gathering, we're gathering with a purpose. We're not just coming to get, but we're coming to serve. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. So one of the commitments that makes someone a part of this church is they gather here. And, and, and while you turn there, I just want to make the point. This is something that as I've talked to people over the years, there can be some confusion on. There can be churches you are a part of that you love, that you hold dear, you grew up in. If you're not gathering those people regularly, they may have been your church, but the people you're gathering regularly with now, they are your church. And so I know sometimes people for... for good memories, for the love they have will speak of, we're still part of that church. The church is identified first and foremost by their gatherings. You may be part of that church again, and you may look back with fond memories on the times you did gather. But those with whom you are gathering regularly now, that really in the first instance is your church. That is your church, because congregations congregate. They come together as a church. And when they come together, they come together with a purpose. Um, what, what are we coming together to do? Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Christ, he, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So don't miss this. The leadership gifts in the church are given to equip the members of the church for the work of ministry. The work of the ministry does not belong primarily to the leaders, but rather to the whole body. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, which he then renames or, or clarifies for the building up of the body of Christ. That ministry is the building up of the body of Christ. Then he gives us a degree. How, how big of a project is this building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I don't have time to fully unpack what that means, but I think it should be obvious that's not a goal we're ever going to arrive at in this life. There will always be more work to do. There's always more ways the church can look more like Jesus, be more mature. Then he says it negatively, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by winds and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, and here it is, the work of the ministry, speaking the truth in love, 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This body is only going to grow when each and every part and joint and sinew comes together, speaking the truth in love, with an aim to build itself up in love. And that's another mark of what a local church is. It's a group of people committed to gather together, committed to build up, to edify, to strengthen, to mature itself. We regularly gather together as Christ's church, and we use our gifts to serve and build up the church. We use our gifts to serve and build up the church. Pastor Daniel taught us how the Holy Spirit at salvation has gifted us all with spiritual gifts. And 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, but for what purpose? For the common good. As a part of what we're trying to identify when we're having a conversation with someone, are you part of this body is, are you committed to gather regularly with these Christians? And are you committed as you gather regularly to build up and edify and use the gifts that God has given you with this particular body? And where the answer is yes, okay, we're, we're most of the way on to being members of each other and, and part of the same church. So, united by a common faith in the gospel, united by a common baptism, united by a common confession of faith, united by a common gathering and gifting, which brings us to point number five, united by a common stewardship and submission. And it may seem strange to you that, that the fifth of six points we talk through with prospective members is the issue of dealing with sin and church discipline. But I think this gets at the heart of what it means to be part of a body and also at the heart of where so many other churches, faithful in other remains, in other regards, um, inexplicably drop the ball. Turn to Matthew 18. Part of my understanding of what it means to be part of a body of Christ is that we become members of each other and my walk and my life becomes your business and your walk and your life becomes my business that in uniting with the church, we take on a mantle of both responsibility and authority and a mantle of submission. And, and we've learned over the years that you can't assume these things. It's helpful to be clear. Is it your understanding that you have these responsibilities and we have these responsibilities for you? And that's one of the reasons we make this a point of discussion. Point A, we are responsible for the body's faithfulness. I want to start before Matthew 18 with a parable that sets it up to help you see the picture of the heart and spirit and attitude. Matthew 18, verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that has went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. Don't, don't miss this. The parable of the lost sheep is right before this. Then Jesus gives the point of the parable. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. And then, explaining how the Father's will will be accomplished, he then says, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is how the Lord ordains that not one of these little sheep should be lost. And what Jesus is saying is to the, the body, to the church, 
we corporately are responsible for each individual sheep that might go astray. And so part of what we want to know when we talk with someone who is a prospective member is, will, will you take on that responsibility? Will, are you willing, if God should reveal it, if you should see something, to, to go after one of the Lord's sheep? Will you love his children in this way? It can be costly. It can be difficult. And so being a member of this church means you recognize, yes, I will be faithful as God reveals, as I see things, to, to help fulfill the Father's purpose. It's not his will that one of these little ones should perish. And so, yes, if, if I see something, if the Lord reveals something, I will be faithful to go. I'll take that responsibility. It's a measure of responsibility and authority. Conversely, flipping it around, I recognize the body's responsibility and authority to speak to me. So that's, that's an important clarification. Are you willing to take on that responsibility? And you recognize the body's responsibility to do that to you. Point B, the body is responsible for our faithfulness. So there's this symbiotic reciprocity going on that all of us corporately are responsible for the faithfulness of each other individually, and each of us individually are subject to the rest of the body. That, that's how we remain healthy. Let me read to you uh, Hebrews chapter 4, where the same point is made. No, Hebrews, sorry, chapter 3. And, and I want to highlight the plural singular words. Take care, brothers, plural, all y'all. All y'all take care against what? lest there be in any of you or any one of you. So all of us need to be alert, lest one of us have an evil, unbelieving heart leading one of us to fall away from the living God. What's the remedy? What's the uh, cure for that danger? But all of us exhort each one of us every day, as long as it is called today, that not one of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the reasons we gather regularly and we encourage each other regularly, all of us, is so that not one of us gets hardened and slowly falls away. So one of the reasons we gather, one of the things we do in gathering is encouraging, stirring one another up to love and good deeds, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So membership means being responsible, taking that responsibility on. And trust me, it can be challenging. Some of the hardest things we do is going after, pursuing people who, who are, are no longer walking in the light. You're walking off and they don't want to talk. And you get, That's what loving one another means. That's what it means to fulfill our Father's desire that not one of these little ones should perish. And so being a member of a particular local church is taking responsibility for a particular group of people. Because if you continue reading Matthew 18, Jesus' instructions are first, you go one-on-one. -on -one. If your brother sins, tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. See, Matthew 18 can only take place in a church context. And so the Lord, who doesn't want any of his sheep to be lost, has put this structure in place, which all of us have a, a sphere of responsibility and authority, and all of us have a, 
um, a subjection and need to submit to, that as the household of God, as believers, your faithfulness, your discipleship is my business, my faithfulness, my discipleship is your business, and the Lord would have us encouraging one another. And so where that recognition is in place, where someone says, yes, I will gather these people. Yes, I will use my gifts to serve them. Yes, I will spur them on to faithfulness. And yes, when I begin to falter, I welcome them coming and talking to me. That, that's what it means to be part of a local church, united by a common stewardship and submission. We are responsible for the body's faithfulness, and the body is responsible for our faithfulness, which brings us to our final point, united by a common shepherding and oversight. United by a common shepherding and oversight. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. The Lord has gifted his body with gifted people in leadership, given a responsibility as under-shepherds. And this, again, is one of the unique bonds within each particular local church. Local churches have pastors and elders, but they're not my pastors. They're not my elders. But within a local church, you have those relationships. So First Peter 5, let's just read um, 1 through 4. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the Lord has ordained in each local church that there to be elders and pastors and, and leaders and that there's a shepherding and an oversight. One of the things I love about our church's plurality of elders is that nobody then becomes exempt. All of us have shepherding, because each individual elder, take me for an example, I'm subject to the plurality of the elders. I have someone watching over me that I need to submit and listen to, and vice versa. There's nobody who's just on top, but each individual member is overseen by those shepherding leaders. So our leaders watch over our souls as those who will give an account. In Hebrews um, chapter 13, we read some more about this. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So I just want to, two or three things here. God put leaders in his church for the advantage of the flock. And those leaders will give an account. They, they will answer to the chief shepherd. I will. The other elders will, will give an account to Christ Jesus for how we have handled his flock, which is terrifying. And so the, the chief shepherd has raised under shepherds. And, and those relationships are particular to a local church. I'm not going to give an account for the people down the street. But I and the other elders will give an account for the members of this church. This is one of the reasons we're recognizing who is this church. For me, I need to know. I, I very much need to know who I'm going to give an account for. And likewise, those in that relationship with leadership 
are to submit and honor to them. This is, this is the reciprocity. This, this gets back to the household picture, heads of households. So listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonishing you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace with yourselves. Or 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. So to try to make this one simple picture, if I can, as we understand being part of a local church, it's those who gather here regularly because we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because first and foremost, God has made us members of his household, members of his body. And with that common trust in the gospel, that common faith in the resurrected Lord, we have stepped forward in obedience. We've taken the mark of discipleship upon us. We've been baptized. Furthermore, we, beyond just our common understanding of the gospel, we are working and growing and achieving remarkable amount of common-mindedness and truth. We, we share a common confession of faith. We gather together regularly. And in our gathering, we are committed to using our gifts to serve this particular church, these particular people, to build up in love this particular group, united by a common gathering. And we also recognize that for this particular group, my, my privacy has limitations because my faithfulness, my continued walking in the truth is your business and vice versa that the Lord would have us carry out his will that none of his little ones should fall away, particularly by all of us keeping guard over each other's faith and a recognition of that and a willingness to be faithful both to give correction or to receive it as the case may be. And finally, a, 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 an awareness and a recognition between the leadership and those over whom they will watch and give an account and those under them so that we know who's who. Where those things are in place, when we talk through with people, we believe we're dealing with members in membership because we're united together by the gospel. We're committed to gather together regularly. We are serving each other, using our gifts to build each other up. We submit our own discipleship to each other, that you have the right to come talk to me and I have the right and responsibility to come and talk to you. And we're being watched over and cared for by the under-shepherds that Christ has raised up. That's, that's, in six points, our understanding of what it means to be part of a local church. That's our vision as we see it coming out of Scripture. Um, let's have a word of prayer and we'll move to our time of the Lord's table. Lord God, our desire is that we would function as your body as we ought to function. That the gifts that you have given us we would use. Um, that each joint and each sinew would do its part, that the body would build itself up in love, that we would grow more and more into the stature and fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the schemes of men. So Lord, I, I pray that you would um, bring us more and more together of one mind, that we would um, be in truth, your, your hands, your feet, your arms, your legs, for our joy, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.